First Peter chapter 2. Now, uh, before we get into the text, I'm going to read something to you. And uh, I may be accused of, uh, I, I may be called a name after I read this. And I just want to let you know that I don't care. And uh, that I'm going to read it anyway, because it, it makes a point that I need to cover in the sermon this morning. So here's what I'm going to read. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind require that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such forms as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be sub, uh, submitted to a candid world. I'm not, going to read, I'm not going to read the following pages because in the following paragraphs, the writer of this document makes 27 different uh, allegations, 27 different uh, grievances, and how the king reacted to those grievances. I'll just cut to the end. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to rule, to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wait, uh, wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their 
native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice and of consanguity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of these good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other things and acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Anybody know what I just read? The Declaration of Independence. Yeah, the Declaration of Independence. Now, uh, I'm asking this next question simply out of curiosity and not of any attempt to shame anybody. By raise of hands... How many of you have either never heard these words or it's been so long since you've heard them you forgot what the document actually said? Many of you, many of you. Our founders worked very hard to establish peace with England. That was their sustained effort for many years. As the relationship between the colonies and England continued to deteriorate from argumentation to oppression to warfare, Colonists gathered themselves together to to consider a new form of government, independent from England. Thus, on this day in the year of our Lord, 1776, they issued the Declaration of Independence. Eventually, the colonists, with assistance from others, namely the French, would defeat the greatest military superpower on the face of the earth at the time to earn their freedom. Just to be clear... July 4th is not the day that we won our independence. That's the day we declared our independence. The Revolutionary War would not end until... uh, I I, I did this in the first service too. The Revolutionary War would not end until September 3rd, 1783. 1776, it was declared. 1783, it was secured. Why did I read this? I'll tell you later. Some today argue that our government, the government of the United States of America, has become tyrannical, similar to that of King George in England. They argue that we should throw off our current government and form something new that is more in line with the vision of our founders. Other people argue for reform of the current system. There is no doubt that 
There is no doubt that the word that is most apt for today in America is the following word, polarized. We are a polarized people right now. The evidence of that is pretty clear. Uh, if, you, um, if you were to ask someone, I, I'm not going to refer to Republicans and Democrats this morning. I'm just going to refer to Party A and Party B. And you can imagine, use your imagination to figure out who I'm talking about. I just, I want to keep it as neutral as possible here. Party A and Party B. So evidence of our polarization is this. If you, if you make a statement to someone and they say, well, wh where did you hear that from? And you say, somebody from Party A, and they happen to be part of Party A or they support Party A, they'll agree with it. But if it came from Party B, even though they may agree with the ideas contained in the statement, because it's a person from Party B, they're likely to disagree with it strictly on party lines. It's, it's a messed up time. It's a messed up time. Very few people do I find out in the culture today who are taking ideas and looking at those ideas based on the merit of that idea and whether that idea is good or bad, right or wrong, or helpful or not helpful. And more I'm seeing in the culture, they're evaluating the idea strictly on the source, what party the idea emanated from, what political party. We're polarized. But as we think about these things, what does the Bible say? And that brings us to our question for today. How should Christians live under the government of the United States of America? How should, the, how should the Christians live under the United States of America? Now, I realize, because I'm not a dummy, that I'm in a room with a spectrum of people, right? Uh, some of you in this room pay very little attention to, to the government, very little attention to the news because you, you've concluded that it's all nonsense and so you're just not going to pay attention and you're just content to live your life and do your job. I'm probably going to offend you. Some of you are absolutely obsessed about the government <laughs> and it's all you think about all the time and, and, and um, uh, you've got uh, thoughts going on in your head of, of taking big action and my goal is probably to offend you too. Uh, so everybody should be walking out of here mad at Scott today. Everybody, right? Um, my job is, what, what's, what's the job of a preacher? To comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted? <laughs> afflict the comfortable. Afflict the comfortable, that's what it is. Okay, so th this passage that we're looking at today, in verse 15, it starts out like this, for this is the will of God. So let's just stop right there and let's talk about, for just a minute, the will of God, because I think this is a tactical error that many of us fall into as Christians. When we think about the will of God, we need to think about it in at least two different ways. The will of God as it pertains to his revealed will, which is not difficult for me to share with you because it's, it's, it's the book, it's the Bible, it's the thing that we carry with us. It's the app on your phone, right? It's, it's the Bible. And if we're not careful as Christians, we will ignore it. And so I'm, I'm encouraging you as we think about God's will and we think about his revealed will, don't do that. Don't ignore it. So let's, when I talk about God's revealed will, I'm talking about the, the things that we know because they're written clearly in God's word. It's not really a debatable thing. It's clear in scripture. Things like this, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, which says, this is the will of God. Okay, I, I don't, I don't know if this could get any clearer. I don't think my, this mic is working. 
I think this mic is working, but uh, I, I guess I'll just stay here and not walk around, which I like to do. So, um, but this couldn't be any clearer. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is a, is a fancy Bible word that just means that God is shaping you. He's growing you into the image of Christ. He's changing you. You're being further set apart. You're being sanctified, okay, for his purposes. So this is clear from God's word. His will is that his people change. We grow. We mature in Christ, right? There's also uh, 1 Timothy 2.4, which talks about uh, God's stated purpose, his stated desire. This is good and it is pleasing on the side of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. What is God's stated desire for unbelievers? That they come to know him, that they come to be saved, that they come to trust Jesus Christ as their savior from sin. This is his stated purpose. Everybody. And that includes, just in case you weren't keeping track, that includes everybody. So think, if you would, I don't know if you're in party A or party B or you... you you like political party A or B better. But I want you to imagine the person that's in the opposite party, political party, from the one that you're in, who you believe stands for the absolute most wicked, abysmal laws and policies that you could possibly imagine. God's stated desire, his revealed will, is that that person be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Do you understand that? That would have been a good time for an amen right there. Okay, just, just, I want to make sure you're awake because it's hot in here. I put on my jacket so I could sympathize with you. Okay, if I get too hot, I'll take it off and then I won't sympathize no more. So this is God's stated will, right? God's stated will that we, that Christians be sanctified and that unbelievers be saved. Good. Now, there's another aspect of God's will. It's his sovereign will. It's his sovereign will. Sovereign just means that God is in control of everything. And so there are aspects to this life where God's sovereign will unfolds, but we don't know how it's going to go. But, and this is important, we sometimes as Christians fool ourselves into thinking that we do know how it's going to go. And I want us to be careful about that as we move along in life. So what am I talking about? Uh, In the 2020 election. The 2020 presidential election, uh, I don't know if you were paying attention to this, but there were uh, prophets claiming to be Christian prophets who uh, said with 100% certitude that they had received a message from the Lord that Donald John Trump was going to serve a second term as president, like a lot of them like scabs, dozens at least, maybe a maybe hundred, I don't know. But there were a lot of people who claimed to be Christian prophets who said that Donald J. Trump was going to serve a second term for president. Now, they're all, they were all wrong. So what do we do with that? Well, how they reacted with that is they, uh, they went away into a room somewhere and they wrote Guidelines for Future Prophecy, which I, is a hilarious document. If you'd like to read it, I'll give you a copy. It's good entertainment for me. I, I find it hilarious. Because they, they confuse, there's a confusion there between God's revealed will and his sovereign will. So let me, let me give you an example of what the scripture says, right? Proverbs 19.21. 
Many are the plans of the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. What purpose are we talking about? His revealed will. He has told us in his word, right, that he desires saved people to be sanctified and sinners to be saved. So he's going to arrange things on the earth in such a way that that will happen to the maximum amount. And we don't know the way it's gonna turn out. And, and so here's what will happen. You'll have a candidate for party A who is terribly unbiblical, a terribly unbiblical person. Uh, the things that they stand for, the Bible stands directly against, or the, or the things that they promote, the Bible speaks against uh, directly against. And you'll have a candidate B who's not a perfect candidate, but is far more biblical than candidate A. And what Christians will do is in their confusion over God's revealed will and God's sovereign will, they will conclude it must be God's will that candidate A get defeated and candidate B get into office. Because after all, candidate B stands for more biblical things than candidate A. But I wanna expand your mind this morning for a moment and help you to understand that it may be in God's sovereign plan that Allowing candidate A to get into office is the very thing that will inspire Christians to be more sanctified and unbelievers to come to know him, which is part of his revealed will. I know that's mysterious and it doesn't, doesn't seem to make sense, but we, the, the point I'm trying to make here is we do not know God's sovereign will. We don't know it. We just don't. And we need to stop pretending that we do. And if you want evidence of this, look at Daniel chapter four. Daniel chapter four, in this passage, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of, of what kingdom? Babylon. I mean, okay, just to make a connection here, at the end of Peter, when he's giving his salutation, uh, he says in verse 13 of chapter five, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. He's, he's in Rome, but he's saying, Rome, he's equating Rome with Babylon, saying this is a really corrupt city that I'm living in. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the city that is synonymous in biblical terms with corruption and bad, <laughs> Babylon. Erwin Lutzer wrote a book called The Church in Babylon. You know, it's, a, it's not a good city to be the king of. So in his, he's describing his second dream and Daniel's gonna interpret it and then Nebuchadnezzar's gonna end up turning into a beast. But before he does, we read this. This is Nebuchadnezzar talking about his dream. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the world, uh, by the word of the holy ones, sorry, by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives to it whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Though we don't understand why God allows things to happen the way he does, why he allows one president to not get elected into office and a less biblical president to get elected into office, though we don't know why that is, we do know that God's stated purpose never changes. He wants saints to be sanctified. He wants sinners to be saved. And so God sometimes allows things to happen that are inexplicable to us as part of his sovereign will. But he's doing that all the time to accomplish his revealed will. Does everybody make sense? Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So our passage this morning lies right at the tension, 
right at the tension point between God's revealed will and his sovereign will. And, if we, and we can get ourselves into trouble when we avoid doing his revealed will as we kick against his sovereign will. So let's talk for just a moment about authority. Take your Bibles, and we're going to look at a couple parallel passages, and I actually want you to turn there. So turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Again, these are, these are passages that are not by the same author, because Peter wrote Peter, and uh, Paul wrote Romans and Titus. Uh, but these are uh, passages on, along the same lines. Uh, Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. I heard one preacher say it this. He does not bear the nine millimeter in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. That's a whole nother sermon. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. These, this is God's revealed will. That this is how we ought to live on the earth as Christians. Flip over to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. And I'll just read a few verses here, beginning in verse 1. Paul is talking to Titus and telling him to instruct the church, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, Passing our days today, doesn't it? Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That sounds like the United States in 2021. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay. There's a common way of thinking out there in the world, especially among Christians, and that's this. If, the gov if our government leaders are doing evil, if they're doing wrong, as the Bible defines wrong, then we do not have to submit to them because according to our Constitution, we are the government. I've heard this argument many times. Uh, and, and so because our government works for us, we don't have to submit to wrongdoing. And there's a place for that, but, but let's talk about it first because sometimes we see this worked out in how citizens interact with law enforcement. 
okay? I don't know, I probably watch too much YouTube, okay? I probably do. But there's all kinds of like police body cam footage on YouTube and a police officer pulls someone over for speeding or some other traffic infraction or they've got a report of a stolen vehicle or something. But they do a legitimate traffic stop, they pull the person over and the law enforcement officer walks up to the window and the first thing that you get, okay, so my number one fun thing is that they roll the window down two inches, Okay, they don't, they're not gonna roll the window down and have a conversation. They're gonna roll the window down two inches. And then they say, why'd you stop me? What's this all about? What crime have I committed? What proof do you have? You work for me, you know. I pay taxes and I'm paying your salary. So you need to listen to me. Just go on YouTube. You'll find all kinds of them. They're fun to watch for about five minutes and then you get bored. But What's the problem with that? According to this reasoning, when... It, Let's put this. Let's take. Let's take this logic and let's put it in a different context and see if it holds water. Okay. So, let's say that you've got a military recruit and the military recruit gets off the bus for boot camp, and immediately the drill sergeant starts yelling at the recruit in a way that he or she does not appreciate. Any military folks in here ever been yelled at by their drill sergeant in a way that was harsh? I, that's. An, I got an amen in the front row. Yeah. And imagine that you as the recruit say to this person, listen, I don't know if you know this or not, I'm a taxpayer. And I pay your salary. And so you better stop talking to me in those harsh tones, sergeant, whoever. I think you're gonna be doing some push-ups. You may be doing some KP. You may be thrown out of the military altogether. I don't know. There's gonna be consequences to those actions. That's all I know. Now, you can, you can argue with that, right? But, but let me ask you this. What would be the impact of that attitude on our military where men and women do not respond to rank or authority? It'd be chaos, right? You go around that corner and I want you to hold that corner until, no, I'm not doing that. That's too risky. Comfy right here, boss. I'm just gonna, no. You might argue back. You might say, well, when that recruit joined the military, they agreed to abide by the rules of the military. True enough. That's true enough. But can I say this? And can I, can I be as firm as I possibly can be? If you grow up in the United States, you grow up a citizen of the United States and you reach the age of 18 or above and you decide that the laws and the statutes in the United States are not to your liking, you are free to leave and immigrate to a different country. It's just the truth. Some countries are harder to get into than others. But if you follow the law and you've worked through the red tape, you can probably immigrate to a different country. You can even renounce your U.S. citizenship should you choose to do so. We have to understand that for this world to work, for there to, to, to be order and not chaos, we have to have authority structures. They're good. They're something to be thankful for. So Christians are to relate to the government in the following way. Look at verses 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake. This is 1 Peter 2. Be subject to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. We are to relate to the government humbly, humbly. Submit in this 
the Greek word for submit in this passage is hupotasso. It means to arrange under. We arrange our lives under. Uh, so there's an authority structure here in the United States, and we, you know, it means that we, when we want to drive a car, when we purchase the car, we go to the DMV and we stand in the line and we get title transfer and we get plates put on and we get a driver's license. We take, we go through the examination so that we can get the license so that we can drive safely on the road. By doing that, you are arranging yourself under the authorities, right? It means that when you start a business, you, you follow the rules of doing that. You, you get the right licensing and whatever. We've, we submit, we arrange our lives under. Sometimes when our government officials act wrongly, we need to speak, about, speak up about that. But, but let, me, let me just give you a couple of scenarios to consider. Say that you're a citizen and every time you pick up the phone or you write an email to your congressperson, to uh, your city councilman, to whomever, that, 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 you're, that you're, your messages are critical and harsh at every turn. Pretty soon you earn a reputation with elected officials as being someone who is a troublemaker, right? Who is not interested in doing anything good to help any, anybody, let me ask you this question, and it's an honest question. In that scenario, if you go down that way of life, and let's say that that elected official needs to start a blue ribbon panel or to get some consultation or some input for how they manage their affairs, do you think they're gonna call you? I'm guessing no. On the other hand, on the other hand, Let's say that you're a person who abides by one of the universal laws of life, right? Which is, you know, for, think about your spouse in this scenario, right? For every one thing that you say critical of your spouse, you probably ought to start with three good things, three positive things, right? What if you were so thankful for your elected leaders that every once in a while you sent them a note of encouragement or, or if they did something that you found pleasing, that you let them know that. Thank you for serving. I know it's a tough job so on and so forth. I know that public opinion is not always with you, but thank you for doing this. What if, what if you were, you demonstrated to the elected leader that you were a reasonable person and that when you did submit an idea, you submitted it humbly and you submitted it constructively? A couple, couple of stories I could tell you here. One, one time I had an elder, this wasn't at this church, I had an elder tell me, Scott, your preaching stinks. And I said, well, what am I doing wrong? Is it my introductions? Is it the middle part? Is it the points? Is it the conclusion? Is it too long? Is it too short? What's the problem? He said, I don't know. It just stinks. Like, I, I, I like tell me. And he, I don't know what it is. It's just, they're rotten. Stinker after stinker. Just one after the other. Not very helpful, right? The church that I attended for biblical counseling training, by the way, the church that's going to be coming here in the fall, that they're gonna send representatives here in the fall to do our biblical counseling training here, is called Faith Church in Lafayette. It used to be Faith Baptist Church, now it's Faith Church. And they're not a perfect church, there's no such thing. So let's get that out of the way. But Faith Church in Lafayette decided that they were going to be servants to the community. So, and I'm not advocating that we be just like them, but here's what I'm saying that they did and what fruit that it bore. I'm saying 
that they decided to put a survey in the newspaper, in the local newspaper, like a whole page, or you could go online and fill it out on the computer, but, but a, whole, a whole page of the newspaper, and, and people could mark dots or make responses of how, what, what needs existed in the community that, that were yet to be filled. And at the end of the survey, they decided that what, what was needed in their part of town and the community that they were part of was a community center, something that would be open to the public where folks could come in and they could do a host of things. They could get daycare services. They could, there's a food and clothing pantry. There's a, a fitness center and, and for a, just a place for the community to rent out to gather, just, just to have a, um, a big meeting. And so they, within their church and within their community, raised the money and they built the building. And they took the risk of opening that building to the community. And it was messy. I remember one time there was a stabbing in the building. And they got through it. They also, for years and years and years, have offered free biblical counseling to the community and have had armies of people trained through that, through that ministry. So they've, they've served their community well. One day, in, in, the, in the county that they live in, uh, one of the big problems that they have is something called shaken baby syndrome. I don't know if you've ever heard it or not. Parents are on meth. They get out of control in their anger, and they shake a child that won't stop crying, and they do damage to that child, like brain damage to that child. And so the, the, the mayor, I think it was the mayor of the, of the city, decided to put together a blue ribbon panel to combat, how do we combat shaken baby syndrome in this community? And this is my recollection of what happened. The mayor said, I want the pastor of that church on this panel. And everybody said, you can't do that. This is a secular government and that's a religious person. And, he said, and the mayor responded, this is a spiritual issue and it demands a spiritual solution. I want that man on this panel. And he was very constructive on that panel and helped to serve even more the community. Well, what did that lead to? Later on, the Faith Church wanted to start a community center over on the Purdue side of town. And they, they acquired some land and they started to put together plans. And uh, a certain segment of the community, a more progressive segment of the community came out and said, no, we do not want them here in this community. They are haters. We don't want them on this side of town. Get them out of here. And that very same community, it happened to be the LGBTQ community, the, the very same community from their side of town came over and said, you need to stop. These people have done nothing but love us. They've, do, they've done nothing to hurt us. You need to stop. And that community center, that second community center on the Purdue side of town stands to this day. You see what's going on? They made themselves valuable to their fellow man, to their community. They served and loved. They practiced their faith. They didn't do, they didn't do anything sinful. They, did, they weren't forced into anything sinful. They simply served their community well, and it gave them opportunity. We need to serve humbly. David, David was anointed king. King David was anointed king of Israel. Saul, the problem was Saul did not remove himself from office. And David had multiple different opportunities to kill King Saul, and his men encouraged him in that effort. And King David said he would not do it. He said, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, King Saul, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that, the, that he is the Lord's anointed. 
we, we relate to our government humbly. If you want your brain to melt just a little bit, I want you to remember that in the book of Exodus, as God was beginning the work of delivering Israel out of Egypt, what was the key thing that had to happen? Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. So what did they do? They stayed. So God sent plagues and plagues and more plagues. And the whole, they answer the whole time, let my people go. No, I'm not gonna do that. Then he finally sent the Passover. God sent the Passover. And Pharaoh said, you can go now. Like, get out of here. And at that moment, they got up and they left. Seems that we see lots of examples in God's word of, of God's people humbly relating to government. Now, you could argue that Pharaoh then gave the reverse order, come back, and they went chasing after them. But some people argue that the moment that Pharaoh said go, that Israel became a nation in that moment with Moses as their leader, and they were now a sovereign nation. You could argue that either way. Anyway, God took care of Pharaoh's army. The second thing that we need to, way that we need to relate is in an above reproach kind of way. Verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Again, if you live your life in such a way that you are known, you've built a reputation as a reasonable person, as a person who loves this community, as a person who puts forth their, their thinking, their time, their treasure to benefit the community. Uh, when somebody comes along and says, oh, you're a Christian? You are a follower of Jesus Christ? Well then, you must be a bigot, a homophobe, a misogynist, a blah, 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 blah then the people that have known you in the community, the people that, that have really gotten to understand who you are and how you tick will say, are you talking about him? No. That person loves this community. You need to be quiet. You'll silence the foolishness, the, foolish, the ignorance of foolish people. That's the kind of reputation that we want to have. In Luke chapter 22... In Luke chapter 22, I'm just going to recap it for sake of time, but this is the episode where Jesus is being arrested, right? He's being arrested in the garden. And um, uh, one of the, the disciples draws out a sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus heals the ear and then peacefully surrenders himself. But, 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 but he gets his words out. He says, I was teaching in the temple every day. You're going to arrest me like a robber with clubs and swords? I'm sure that in that moment when they arrested him, they were thinking, this is kind of over the top, what we're doing here. This is, this is not quite right. Finally, and this is where the peaceful resistance comes in, right? In a way that understands the role of human government under God. Verse 17. Verse 17, I think, is very important. Honor everyone, right? That's the idea of showing reverence, showing high regard for so honor everyone. Uh, I lost my place. Here it is. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. And that word there is agape. It means that we, we show 
warm affection for and care for, warm regard, and we show interest in the brotherhood. That's talking about believers, right? So we're to honor everyone, but we're to especially love the brotherhood, fear God, right? That, that word fear has the idea to revere God with a special interest in not offending him, okay? Special interest in not offending God. We, we, re, we fear God and then honor, again, show high regard for the emperor. There seems to be a hierarchy there, right, of how we treat people. We honor everyone. We show regard for everyone, but we especially love the brethren and we especially fear God. We, we don't wanna offend God. And so when it comes time for us to Tell the government, right? The government is asking us to do that which is sin. We are to tell the government as kindly and as respectfully as we can. I can't do that. I cannot do that. Accepting the consequences of those actions. Accepting the consequences of those actions. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, we see character after character of people who lived this way and were elevated in the ranks of the human government that they served under, in some cases to second in command. Joseph, Nehemiah, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Esther, Mordecai, you get the idea. They didn't do this because they were a constant thorn in the king's side. They did this because they were working for the good of the city and the community where they lived and also honoring God along the way. In some cases, Daniel's specifically turned the heart of a king of Babylon to fear God. Folks, we never, we're never gonna change hearts and minds through violence. We're gonna change, we're gonna overcome evil with good. I think that's what the Bible says in Romans 12, 21. We are to overcome evil with good. I understand that we are living in a land where a leader, an elected leader can do wrong and they do it frequently these days. And what's worse is that when that leader does wrong, and I'm, I'm not even talking about what God's word says, I'm talking about wrong according to the law of this land written down and codified. When our elected leaders do wrong according to this land, we're also living in a land where a corrupt court will rule in that corrupt leader's favor. But I ask you this question, is that a legal issue or is that a moral issue? You can answer. Is that a legal issue or is that a moral issue? Well, you could say, well, it's a little bit of both because the, the, the leader and the court are corrupt, but there's something going on in the integrity of the people in leadership and the integrity and the morality of the people in the court. And folks, to a, to a, I would just say it this way, that's, the, that's, where, that's the church's wheelhouse. <laughs> we are to be out sharing the gospel, making disciples of Jesus Christ, participating in the government when we can, when we're called upon to do so, and bringing and operating our lives with integrity and truth according to the law. William Wilberforce was a man in England. He was a contemporary of the American Revolution, by the way. He was probably quite, uh, he was probably on the young end when he was, 
when that was going on in the United States of America, but William Wilberforce worked for the abolishment of slavery in Great Britain. And he worked for years because slavery was a very lucrative trade. It made a lot of people money and it, was very, it wasn't all that poorly looked upon at the time. And so he worked and he worked. His faith in God impelled him along this journey to work and to work, but work within the government system. And he worked and he campaigned and he tried to get people into parliament that, were, that would abolish slavery. And he worked and he worked. And as an older man, a vote was taken in parliament, and finally, the slave trade was abolished. And in that moment, according to what I've read, in that moment, a man stood up who was his chief opponent in the effort, a man by the name of Charles Fox. And Charles Fox said this, according to history, when, the people, of great, when people speak of great men, they think of men like Napoleon, men of violence, Rarely do they think of peaceful men, but contrast the reception they will receive when they return home from their battles. Napoleon will arrive in pomp and in power, a man who's achieved the very summit of earthly ambition, and yet his dreams will be haunted by the oppressions of war. I think in the modern vernacular, we call that PTSD. William Wilberforce, however, will return to his family, lay his head on his pillow, and remember the slave trade is no more. And again, this man, Charles Fox, was his chief opponent, a man who wanted to uphold the establishment of slavery. How should Christians live under the government of the United States of America? Well, the Christians live under the government of the United States by properly understanding the tension between being a kingdom of priests. We're here to represent God on the earth. We are a kingdom, we are a royal priesthood, right? Here to represent God on the face of the earth, but we're also sojourning through the kingdom of man, a kingdom that is corrupted by sin, a kingdom that where injustices and wickedness happen all around us. Now, I'm gonna say something that's probably going to make some of you quite happy and make some of you scratch your head. I think it would be wise for us as Americans to start to think about or conceive of the idea of another constitutional convention. This is me speaking. This is just my opinion. I do think that we have a lot of problems with our current form of government and they're not getting, they don't seem to be getting any better. But we don't overthrow the government. We don't, we don't, whatever. But it would be good for people to begin to think about, given the technological things that have happened from the founding of our country to now, given the problems that we've observed with our form of government and it's its inherent ability to be corrupted by money and other things. What are some ways that we can make some real improvements and recapture in this day the vision of our founders? I think that would be healthy conversations to have. And perhaps would even, and perhaps would even, uh, I, and, and I can almost see the propaganda headlights, headlights, headlines almost starting to form. Uh, a pastor advocates for a shadow government. I don't. 
I'm simply saying that it would be good for us to, to take, take a look at our form of government and, and to think through as, as citizens uh, how this thing, how our world has changed since 1776 or the writing of our Constitution and to, and to think these things through. But to do so in such a way that is honorable, respectable, that's humble, and is pleasing to God. God may use that to, to get our current elected leaders to wake up to the reality that they can't get away with the shenanigans anymore. Don't know. And maybe it would help. But by way of application, let me just say a few things. Uh, practice honoring gov- all government officials from the president to parking enforcement. It's, it's hard to respect parking enforcement, isn't it? I've only gotten like one ticket in Delaware for parking. And I was thankful because it was a, just a few bucks. If I paid it the same day, it was like super cheap. Uh, but we need to be practice. We need to practice honoring, and that that it shades the way we talk about our government officials and and the re- appreciation that we show to them. First Timothy two one and two says this. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet life, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I don't know if you understand what the ideal conditions are for Christianity, but it seems like the ideal, Christ, the ideal conditions would be that we could all live in such a government format that we would be able to lead peaceful and quiet lives, sharing the gospel as we sojourn through this time. But show thankfulness to your elected officials. When you see a law enforcement officer or a parking enforcement somebody or a a senator or a congressman, say thank you for your service. Appreciate that. Secondly, I would say live in such a way that you are recognized as a good citizen as much as possible. Someone who is eagerly looking out for the good of the community as you practice your faith within that community, as you share the gospel within that community. I think you understand the difference between being a pain in the keister and being someone who's recognized as a good citizen, a reasonable person, somebody who's willing to talk about the issues of the day in a constructive manner. Third, when, when forced to choose to obey God rather than men, do so as graceful, graciously and peacefully as possible. In other words, there's what we do as Christians in having to peacefully or to, to resist you know, practice civil disobedience to the government. There's, there's the idea that we have to do that, and then there's the way we go about doing it. Try to do so peacefully rather than uh, being a stinker about it. Graciously, peacefully. And then finally, pray for your government leaders to align their understanding of good and evil with God's word, with what, he has, what his revealed word says about what is good and what is evil. Our founding fathers, they worked hard for years to try to model, trying to peacefully work out a deal with King George. And I think, sometimes I think, how would our lives be different if King George would have humbled himself just a little bit and said, you know what, colonies, send over a delegation, let's work this out. We may still be part of Great Britain today, I don't know. But he didn't do that, right? And so, not acting on their own, but acting as a group, uh, uniting themselves around some core principles of governance, they 
resisted the English government and the American Revolution was begun. Is, was that the right or wrong thing to do? I'll leave that to you to judge. I know there's been much ink spilled saying that the colonists should have rebelled or shouldn't from a Christian standpoint. But I think that if they were going to rebel, they, they did so in, in the most gracious way they could, first trying to work everything out peacefully so that, so that history would mark them as men and women who were trying to do that. And it, and it wasn't, the, uh, the king wasn't having anything to do with it. That's the kind of people I think we need to be. Father, I thank you for this, for your word. I thank you for this time that you've given us. We, haven't, we certainly haven't resolved all the issues and, and I wouldn't pretend to understand everything about your word, Father, and about the craziness of this life. But Father, I pray, first of all, thanking you for giving us the United States of America, thanking you that we live in an ordered society where um, when I need to go and get something done, I can do so with reasonable expectation that it will be done peacefully and safely. So Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to worship you in this land freely. Pray that that would continue. Father, we know that there are many threats coming on the horizon uh, to our freedoms of speech and religion and, and so on and so forth. And so we pray that you would help us to become the men and women that you would have us to be, that we would earn favor in the sight of men and that as different problems in our community pop up, we'd be called upon to help solve and help in those problems. And that, Father, as we do so, the gospel would be just coming off of our lips and it would be your love would be uh, working out of our hands and feet to the surrounding world so that many would come to know you as Lord and Savior and that we might be together in eternity. Father, these are things we can unite around and so help us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.